Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. John chapter 11. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John 11, we'll pick up at verse 45. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we going to what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were, spe- so they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report, report it so that they might seize him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your word. We pray that it would feed us, that it would go out and accomplish the purpose for which you have set it forth. And Father, that you would make us like little children who are hungry and call out for food. And so feed us, Father, build us up, bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. So we've made it to the end of chapter 11. The whole chapter has been focused on Jesus' performance of his greatest miracle. That miracle took place in in the little town called Bethany. There he raised a man from the dead who had been in the tomb for four days. We spent five sermons going over the extensive details of that wonderful kindness that uh, wonderful kindness that God showed toward Mary and Martha, uh, Lazarus's sisters, and we, we applied throughout that 
that passage uh, to ourselves. Now we give attention to the fallout, the reaction to the work of Jesus raising a man from the dead. And so, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, as we've heard from the mouth of Jesus himself, as we have seen in our own lives and in our studies, Jesus divides. Jesus always divides. Jesus, I mean, his works divide. What he does uh, and what he says and what is recorded in his word divides people. Uh, what he does leads some to soften toward him and others to harden toward him. And so read, read the scriptures out loud in the public square today and you'll likely see two reactions, right? Two distinct reactions. Some who listen and and praise God, and others who uh, reject it in uh, very strong terms. But Jesus divides. One group from those who had arrived to console Mary saw what had been done, and they believe in Jesus Christ. They see his power, they see what he's done, they see Lazarus back from the dead, and they're like, I believe. Something of God is going on here. In a moment, they see the power of God and, and being given eyes to see um, it, they truly believe. But another group, again, from that group of people who had come from Jerusalem to console Mary and Martha in, in the death of their brother, saw what had been done and definitively did not believe, saw what had been done, observed everything that happened, saw with, um, observed all the same things that the first group did, and did not believe, right? Not being given eyes to see what they, what are they compelled to do? Well, they're compelled to go to the religious authorities who have made their hatred of Jesus Christ very clear. So they see this power and they're like, man, we got to go talk to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We, we need to go talk to those men who have been conspiring to kill Jesus for several years at this point. And so some of the people go to the Pharisees and, and tell them about what had happened. And the scripture then allows us to, to read about the deliberations that took place within this council of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And so what, it, what council was this? What council here is convened? It's likely this is the Sanhedrin. This is, this is the, the supreme court of the Jewish nation. nation okay? This is the, the um, Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin in Greek is, just means the sitting together. Right? It's the, the council, the, the members that sit together. And the chief priests, these people called chief priests, are all ex-high priests. Right? And, and they would be members of the high priestly families, and they would be mostly Sadducees. Right? They're not Pharisees, they're Sadducees, these chief priests. Uh, the current high priest presided over this assembly, 
and had sort of a, it was like the vice president in the Senate, has tie-breaking authority um, for the 70 elders. The council would be made up of 70 elders. The, the, um, the Sanhedrin was broken into three chambers. It had the chamber of the priests, the chamber of the scribes or doctors, and they were connected to the Levites, and the chamber of the elders, some Pharisees, some Sadducees. It was an ecclesiastical court, okay? The Sanhedrin was an ecclesiastical court, but involved in doling out criminal penalties for crimes and sins. Um, I'm sure it is likely that Rome had great influence in the Sanhedrin at this point, and they probably stacked the court Right? They got those who were politically expedient to be in positions on this court. It's said that after Herod the Great came to power, it was packed with Sadducees and priests of the king's nomination and with doctors of canon law whose only aim was to pursue in peace their subtleties. Right? So the, the group had the academics who didn't, didn't want to, um, just wanted to do their research. Right? Um, so we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, to see the Sanhedrin in league with the Herodians throughout Scripture's record of this time, right? It's an ecclesiastical court, but it's been stacked by the Romans, and it's involved is, as much in politics as it is in, in ecclesiastical matters, Here's what the Council of the 71 was directed to do as recorded in the Mishnah, which is 3rd century A.D., so there's some, you know, uh, time difference here. The judgment of the 71 is besought when the, affairs con when the affair concerns a whole tribe or is regarding a false prophet or the high priest, when it is a question whether war shall be declared or not, when it has for its object the enlargement of Jerusalem or its suburbs, whether tribunals of 23 shall be instituted in various provinces, or declare that a town had become defiled and to place it under ban of excommunication. These were some of the works that they were given to. And um, in the century before Christ, Okay, in the hundred years before Christ, capital sentences could only be pronounced by the whole council when it was convened in a certain place. There was a hall in the temple courts called the Hall Gazith, the Hall of Hewn Stones. Um, it was situated in one of the temple courts. It was built of square and highly polished stones, and uh, hence its name. And so only capital uh, punishment could be doled out if this council was con convened in that, in that hall. From this point until Jesus' death, this court would be very busy. There's not much time until Jesus dies. But this court is going to be very busy until that time. The court would try to obtain false testimony against Jesus. They wanted testimony that would be given, that um, would give them reason to put Jesus to death, and, um, but they couldn't find any. 
And they would arrest Jesus, they would bind him, and then they would hand him off to the Roman authority, Pontius Pilate. That's the work of this council. This council, um, interestingly enough, this is also the council that in Acts 4 tells the apostles to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And Caiaphas is there, the same man. The leaders of the Jews were blind. They were blind. They did not see Jesus as he was. They were blind. They were the blind, in fact, leading the blind. Calvin says if they had not been exceedingly stupid and brutish, they would at least have been impressed with some reverence for Christ after so striking a demonstration of his divine power. They now assembled deliberately and intentionally to bury the glory of God, to hide off this work, to bury God's glory at the sight of which they are constrained to be astonished, he says. Look at their first statement. What are we doing? What are we doing? Which is to say, what are we going to do? What are we going to do here? Right? In the face of the, the rising interest in Jesus Christ, they do not set out to find the truth of the matter. They just figure out how to change the circumstances from that which they don't want to that which they do want. They're going to change this around. They're going to get what they want. They do not care about the truth. And so they must manage every event that comes along so that it fits their narrative. They don't care about truth, so they must arrange the narrative. They must arrange every facet of what's coming up. The miracles of God, think of it. The miracles of God are happening around them, and they are trying to figure out what they are going to do. You know, what they're going to do about it. How they're going to obscure the glory of God in this. That's what they're trying to figure out how to do. How about, how about falling on your faces and worshiping Jesus? How about that? How about praising God that, that God has, has visited us? But no, they're thinking, how are we going to maintain our position? How are we going to maintain our authority? How are we going to maintain our position? How are we going to deal with this rival? That question, what are we to do, is fundamentally an unchristian question. I mean, what do I mean by that? I mean that those who go through this life being unwilling to acknowledge God and give Him thanks must give themselves to answering that question all the time without end. What are we going to do next? Right? Those who won't acknowledge God, those who don't see God as sovereign, have their only directive is what are we or what am I going to do next? Right? If everything depends upon us, reasoned Caiaphas, then we must take action. We have to act. We must do. You know, that's what, that's what motivates Elon Musk, right? What are we going to do? 
temperature of the earth is rising, what are we going to do about that? If we don't take action and get to Mars, we are doomed, is what he says. We, what are we going to do? And he's answering the question. But he's answering the question as if he has the power to bring about change, to bring about um, difference, to bring about what he intends to bring about. If we go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's what Caiaphas says. In other words, if we do not keep the people from following Jesus, the Romans will look upon the result of Jesus' work, you know, conversions and, and belief, they're going to view it as rebellion and insurrection. And Romans don't take kindly to rebellion and insurrection. They want peace, right? They, they want peace. They will respond to that sort of um, rebellion by wiping Jerusalem and all of Israel off the map. Be happy to do that. They'd ha be happy to bring their power and their swords against Jerusalem. And then Caiaphas, Caiaphas comes forward, right? In speaks the president of the council. He's the moderator of the council. He's the high priest that year. And, and high priests, if we went back to the Old Testament study, the high priest would be more of a, a lifetime appointment. But at this point in Israel's history, the kings are like, and the Romans are saying, you get a one-year appointment and one-year appointment. They're constantly switching who the high priest is. And for obvious reasons, right, to control them. But he, he begins with those, those words that ambitious men really love to hear. You know nothing at all. That's how he starts. You, you know nothing at all. Here's the Sadducee, here's the high priest, here's the moderator of the court, here's the man who's, who's going to say most of what's being said and who's, gonna, who's going to be leading this group. And he's like, you, you know nothing at all. You know nothing. So who was this Caiaphas? Well, he was appointed to be high priest by the predecessor of Pontius Pilate, Valerius Gratus, in 80, 1880, and Caiaphas was a piece of work. We learn about him from the pages of Scripture and uh, descriptions in first century uh, Jewish historian Josephus. One commentary summarizes him this way, that Caiaphas was a rude and sly manipulator and opportunist who did not know the meaning of fairness or justice and who was bent on having his own way by hook or by crook is clear from the passages in which he is mentioned. He did not shrink from shedding innocent blood. He would get his way, right? He would do what had to be done. He was not concerned about the truth. He was concerned about his power. We see him act here, and then we see him act as a participant at Jesus' trial, and then again he appears in Acts chapter 4. His father-in-law is Annas, who was 
a retired high priest who seemed to have more influence even when Caiaphas was high priest. He was well-connected. And so when Jesus is arrested, you know, after he sits with his disciples in the upper room, and after he sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is arrested. He's brought before Caiaphas. He goes before Caiaphas, which we read about in Matthew 26. Here's what happened. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death, right? So they're trying to get false testimony. No doubt Caiaphas is like, go find false testimony. Go find someone who will testify against him. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up, Caiaphas, and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? What did Jesus say? Nothing. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus speaks, and Jesus said to him, to Caiaphas, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then what does Caiaphas do? Caiaphas puts on a show, right? Caiaphas gets all righteous. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. And what do you think? And they all answered, the council all answered, He deserves death. Then... They spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? So there is Caiaphas, right? There is Caiaphas tearing his robes. And accusing the Son of God of blasphemy. That's what Caiaphas is doing. There he is making pronouncement out of his blindness. He's absolutely blind to the truth. And then there he is spitting in his face and beating him with his fists. That's Caiaphas. That's the legacy of Caiaphas written in the eternal word of God. The spitter in the face of the of the dying or close to dying Son of God. 
back to what he says in our passage. First, his arrogance is on display with his comment about everyone knowing nothing. That fits in with what Josephus said about the Sadducees as a whole. So Josephus says about the Sadducees as a whole, of which Caiaphas would be one, he said this, the Pharisees are affectionate to one another and cultivate harmonious relations with the community. The Sadducees, on the, other, on the, on the contrary, are even among themselves rather savage in their conduct and in their conversations with their peers are as ungentle as they are to strangers. So the Sadducees just, they just tore each other up. They did not, they weren't like the Pharisees. I mean, and it's weird to hear good talk about the Pharisees because the Pharisees are the arch enemies of Jesus and their and his and the Pharisees' works righteousness, but the Sadducees, the Sadducees were the liberals. Liberals eat each other up. Liberals live to tear down, right? And so that's what they're doing. They just tear each other up with their words. And then this statement: "You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish." That is a political statement. That's a political statement, isn't it? Right? He is saying that they must get rid of Jesus or the nation is going to be destroyed by the Romans. That's our game plan. Get rid of Jesus so that the Romans don't come against us. He is saying that they must kill Jesus or else. He is arguing that the nation will be destroyed if they follow Jesus and it will be saved if they reject him. Well, how did that work out? I mean, they did murder Jesus and what happened with the nation? The Romans come along and destroy the temple. In glorious fashion in all of Jerusalem in AD 70. Destroy it. You know, and the ruins are still there. There was, there was a wiser man among the council than Caiaphas that we read about later uh, named Gamaliel. You've heard of Gamaliel? We read about him in Acts 5. Caiaphas was still a member of the council during that early church when it met. Maybe not the high priest, but certainly a member of the council, that, that council of the priests. Um, and remember, the council in Acts 5 meets to figure out what are we going to do about these apostles, these followers of Jesus. Jesus is gone, but now we got these uneducated bumpkins setting the world on fire. And you know they wanted to kill them too. Here's what we read in Acts 5. When they had brought them, the apostles, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, 
whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What a response, right? What a response. But when they heard this, the council, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. How dare these men speak to us this way? We're the council. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, right? Maybe in the, in the, uh, the council of the scribes, the doctors, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. So they go into executive session. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this men... After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too died, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But, it, if, it, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. I mean, that's, that's another good speech. They took his advice, the next verse says. It's somewhat mind-boggling, right? They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, eh, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Booyah. Caiaphas thought that he could control matters and acted like a thug. Gamaliel had the sense to say that if this movement is of God, there is nothing you can do to hinder it. Right? That, that is something to remember as we go about our lives. That difference. Right? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. This is the movement of God. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That has implications for how we live our lives in this fallen world. On the one hand, stick with me here, it means that we should have confidence when we, when we engage with others, when we engage in the public square, sharing the gospel, sharing God's law, praying, you know, praying for things like the overturning of wicked decrees like we've seen in this nation recently. We should have great confidence. If those things are of God, no one will be able to overthrow them. On the other hand, it also means that we shouldn't overinflate the importance of our own works. God is the one who directs history. 
God is the one who directs history. Yes, he uses means, and often those means are little people like you and me, right? No man, though, can deem himself the tip of the spear. You just can't deem yourself the, the tip of the spear or the, the, uh, the leader of the movement, right? So often we have no idea that our actions will lead to anything. We have no idea how God's going to use. We have no idea what, what will happen. And so our actions often have unintended consequences that we couldn't foresee at all. How often has someone told you something that you said had an impact on them? And it was just a throwaway comment that you made six years ago and can't remember saying. Right? You know, and you hear it, and it's like you're listening to somebody else's story. You know, how many times? And yet God at that moment gave that person ears to hear this means of his in you, right? Um, how often do unforeseen circumstances change the course of history? Unforeseen. I mean, think of Calvin on the road to Strasbourg, and there's some skirmish on the one road that he has to take, and so he goes and hangs out in Geneva. And the rest is history. And so, you know, we, and so in one sense, we can have great confidence that the gates of hell will not be prevailed against and God will, God will bring about his means. And then on the other side, we have to have a sense of proportion. God rules over history and we are specks of dust, right? Whatever we do, he can use and it can be of God, but we never get to tell God of the importance of what we are doing and then obligate him to bless those things. I mean, that's, that's celebrity Christianity. That's what celebrity Christianity does. I am God's blessing to the world and he is going to use me and look at how many and look at the numbers and look at the, look at the converts and let's count them again. Maybe there were more. Right? Obligating God to, to use you. The brother of the Lord gives us the right perspective. The one who lived in the same household. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Uplifting words. You know, you open up the Hallmark card and, and it says, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and fades away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. We will live. If the Lord wills, we might stay alive and accomplish something. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And our Lord says, right, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately, sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? 
So you too, when you do all the things that are commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. (laughs) I mean, it just deflates you entirely, right? Once you've served me, once you've served Jesus Christ, at the end of it, about the only thing you can say is, I partially did the things that I had to do and was commanded. That's it. So have a sense of proportion. Right? Have a sense of proportion. Back to Caiaphas's words. He didn't even know what he was saying. Here's the other thing. He had no idea what he was saying. He meant something political. Jesus must die so that the nation might be saved. Scripture says that he did not even speak those words on his own initiative. He was a vessel. He was like not there, okay? Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God scattered around the world. So God uses this wicked man like Balaam. To prophesy truth. God uses him as an instrument. And the import of this, his prophecy is that the death of Jesus Christ would indeed be for the benefit of the Jewish nation and for the whole world, all of those Gentiles too. Ryle says he lets fall a saying on a great public occasion, occasion which comes from his lips with great authority on account of his office as high priest, That saying was afterwards fulfilled in the most marvelous manner by the overruling providence of God, but in a way that the speaker never dreamed of. In other words, Caiaphas spoke of murdering Christ, and what he said was a prediction of the life Christ would bring through his death. Chrysostom says on this, Caiaphas prophesied, not knowing what he said, and the grace of God merely made use of his mouth but touched not his accursed heart. Just animated his mouth, but did not penetrate his heart. And so God makes asses speak truth, right? A truth they do not even understand. His blood be upon us and our children. Remember when those at the crucifixion of Christ said that? His blood be on us and our children. They had no idea what they were saying. No idea. Verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The council did not have ears to hear this prophecy, so they took Caiaphas's first level meeting, we got to get rid of Jesus, to be their marching orders. The Sadducees and the Pharisees came together for this purpose, and what was the effect? Another commentary says, once more and now for the last time, were the fords of the Jordan passed, and Christ was on the soil of Judea proper. He goes to Ephraim. Behind him were Perea and Galilee. Behind him, the ministry of the gospel by word and deed. Before him, the final act of his life, toward which all had consciously tended. Right? This, he crosses over that Jordan. Jesus no longer is able to publicly walk among the Jews. He couldn't go up to Jerusalem. I mean, what a loss for Jerusalem, no? 
What a loss that they would not hear, they would not see any miracles. They would not hear him speak. He was, he could no longer go there. You know, a, a small detail in this, you think about the fact that Jesus got out of Dodge. We can learn from this that there is a time to, to run from danger. Jesus did it. Jesus left town. He could not stay there. Christ patterns for us that it is not unfaithfulness to avoid danger, to slip out of a rioting city, to depart for fear of disease. Sometimes we must stand our ground. Other times we must leave all our possessions behind, right? And Jesus shows us that. Meanwhile, what's going on in Jerusalem? Jerusalem's starting to fill up with people. It's getting packed with people. People, ironically, who are coming to purify themselves for the Passover celebration. Now, it's ironic, isn't it? Jesus is forced out of Jerusalem. The very purity of God, the very life of the world is forced out of Jerusalem and all of Israel is coming into Jerusalem to purify themselves, right? And what's happening? What's happening as they come together? Everybody's talking about Jesus. Did you hear about Lazarus? Did you hear about this guy who was in the tomb four days and he came to life? Did you hear about that? Is this the Christ, right? Even in the temple, they are talking about it. And it says, you know, they're saying, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They're like, what's going to happen? The council intended to arrest him. And you know what they also intended to do. Look forward to verses 9 through 11 in the next chapter. Do you know what they also intended to do, the council? The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, Jesus, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. <laughs> oh, man. And on and on it would go. They would kill Lazarus, right? The council would kill Lazarus, and then they got to kill the apostles. And then they, they got to kill all the disciples that the apostles made, right? And on and on and on it would go. It sounds like the, the pogroms of of Stalin, right? It, it just on and on, and, and Hitler, and on and on. The killing just has to continue in order to keep control. Outside of Jesus Christ, outside of the renewing of the Spirit, there is only death. There is only death. And works in service of death of those we consider threats. Right? Only in Christ, when the, when, when the Spirit of God dwells in a man, is there life. And even more than that, not only does Christ free us up to set aside our hostility toward man, but he transforms us so that we will even lay down our own lives for others. We don't kill, we die in their place. Caiaphas would seek to kill life in order to maintain his grasp on temporal things. Jesus would die to kill death in order to provide his people with eternal life. 
Caiaphas was saturated in death. And Jesus was and is life. Was and is life. So this contrast between the two points us, points out the, the great contrast between death and life. And of Jesus, we learn this, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Contrast that with the work of the council, with the work of Caiaphas. Jesus coming as the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, and dying in your place. It's glorious, isn't it? It's love. It's the kindness of God toward you. Right? Amen?